0: Uh, I have loved this weekend, had the chance to bring my son James up with me and we did some sledding yesterday, which we've not been able to do in Phoenix for a while. And uh, it's awesome being in the shadow of the mountain here. Um, I actually spent about six months back in the day working up on the Navajo Reservation and uh, would look out every night and see Mount Flagstaff. We'd come into Flagstaff here regularly to kind of uh, chill out and, and and hit the town and catch up on uh, errands and things like that. And so it's, man, it's been good for my soul being here. And I'm excited to be with you all, just knowing that, man, as Anthony said, we are one church in 10 congregations and connected in the spirit of God and in our life together as a church body. So thank you for having me. All right, well, the phrase raising the bar is a phrase that comes from uh, the pole vault and high jumpers. Right? Now, I myself personally, I have never vaulted a pole. I've never done the high jump. Uh, but I was in track back in the day and I had a good buddy, Kyle. And Kyle was a pole vaulter. He was an expert pole vaulter. He broke some local records in our high school. And so what would happen is is Kyle would would run and would vault and would Propel himself up and cross over that bar. Well, if others could too, then they would then raise the bar, a step higher, and other people would try. And, and And as other people could make it, they would keep raising the bar until, at the end of the day, uh, often Kyle was the only one left standing, right? The only one left alone, jumping even who could jump that high. And similarly, we use the phrase "raising the bar." It basically means kind of. Elevating the stakes, like raising the stakes or elevating the challenge higher, uh, elevates the competition, and it kind of raises the the challenge that one has to meet in order to succeed or meet the criteria. So we can use this phrase now in a variety of ways today. Like, man, the boss at work—he keeps raising the bar. He makes the benchmarks higher. There's more we have to do to kind of uh, make him happy or meet the demands for work in this season. Or we might say the Apple iPhone, man, the latest model, it just raised the bar again. Man, it's, it's, it, they keep on making it, uh, making setting the standard for the industry, some would say. Or perhaps you come out of dinner with your uh, family where your sister brought her new boyfriend and you're going, man, she's going to have to raise the bar if she wants to impress the parents, right? Get their approval. Raising the bar. What we're going to see today is that Jesus... Raises the bar. Jesus raises the bar when it comes to the ethical demands and requirements of the law. Now, we are in uh, passage John 8. In John 8, this is a famous story of a woman caught in adultery. She's brought by the religious leaders to Jesus. And uh, a quick, kind of superficial reading of the story gives some the impression that what Jesus is doing is lowering the bar. That what Jesus is saying is, I I know you messed up, I know you committed adultery, but it's not that big of a deal. Like the law was about judgment, but I'm here about grace. And so Jesus kind of lowers the bar so she can jump over it. And what we're actually going to see today is that as we take a closer look at the story, what Jesus is doing, he's not lowering the bar so that she can jump over it. He's actually raising the bar so that all the others there find themselves underneath it. And that this raising the bar for Jesus, it's a way of making way for grace. That Jesus raises the bar so there's nothing that we can't stand on our own two feet. It's higher than we could jump on our own. And Jesus, the only one who could meet that demand. Jesus is like the pole vault coach. He keeps raising the bar and he gets to the point where uh, all of us find ourselves under it and unable to meet expectations. But his goal and his point is not ultimately to condemn us, it's to pave the way for grace and so let's jump in to this story the title for the message this morning is raising the bar let's jump in and see how jesus does that with this woman and with this crowd so in chapter 8 verse 1 we read but jesus went to the mount of olives and verse 2 early in the morning jesus came again to the temple so he's in the temple, he's in the public square, the center of the life of the people. This is where all the hubbub is going on, this is where everyone's at, this is the center of the national life of Israel, God's people. So he come to the temple, all the people came to him. So there's crowds, there's a massive crowd surrounding him. And Jesus sat down and he taught them, so he's teaching them. The scribes and the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders of the day, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said, they, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. All right, well, let's stop there for a moment. The first question that we should be asking at this point is where's Waldo, right? Like, where is Waldo? The dude is missing. We have this scene at the temple where the religious leaders have uh, caught this woman in the act of adultery, we were told, and they bring her to Jesus, and they say, hey, the law commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? But one of the first things that we need to recognize is if she was caught in the act of adultery, it takes two to tango, Right? <laughs> Like, adultery is not a one-person act. And so they have caught her in the act of adultery. And if we actually go back to adultery law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, one of the first things we find in Leviticus 20, verse 10, is that if a couple is caught in the act of adultery, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to bring not one, but both of them. Both of them. You're supposed to bring both of them. This is emphasized in the law in the Old Testament, and it's actually raising the bar uh, on the ancient world, where in the ancient world, often in many cultures in the ancient Near East, uh, there was a double standard where women could be held to a higher standard uh, than the men. The men could kind of get away with sleeping around, and God says in his law, no, not amongst my people. If this takes place, I want both to be brought forward. Now, The religious leaders of this day, they are applying the law, but they are applying it selectively. We're seeing that they are bringing only her. And we could ask, well, why did they set her up? We don't know. Is it their friend they're trying to protect? We don't know. But what we do know is that she was caught in the act of adultery. And yet they're not bringing the other person to the table, only her. Now, What is going on with their motives, though? We do read, John explains to us their motives. He says uh, in verse 6, he says, They said this, they brought her to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they are using her as bait. Their goal is to trap Jesus. Now, what is the nature of this trap? Well, Jesus is kind of in a double bind here. Now, if he says, yes, you should stone her, then that uh, gets him good with the law, kind of legal tradition, going, okay, hey, he's not soft on crime. He's not lax on punishment. He cares about the law. He has a high moral standard. And so it kind of gets him good uh, on that front. But on the other side, it does something negative, which is Rome is in charge. And they said, hey, only we hold the death penalty, Right? And so if Jesus is seen as uh, leading the leading the way in stoning this woman, then Rome is going to come in and they can get Jesus on sedition. They can get him on breaking Roman law. So the leaders are trying to trap him going, if we can get him to say, he's yes, he takes the law seriously, then Rome will get rid of him for us. But on the flip side, if Jesus says, no, like, no, I, I don't really let's not apply the law, let's kind of bring it selectively here, let's, let's kind of just let her off the hook, then it can make him look like he's soft on crime, like he's lax on the law, like he's weak on actually caring. Adultery had social ramifications, uh, especially in that day it was seen as, man, this is tearing apart the fabric of our community, the family of the foundation of community. You don't actually care enough to take that seriously. That could get in him in trouble with the religious crowd in Israel, but it would pacify and keep him safe with Rome. And so their question is designed to trap him. And they're essentially saying, hey, Moses or mercy, right? Like, do you take Moses and the law of Moses seriously and and the ways of God seriously? uh, Or... Mercy, are you just going to show grace? Are you about truth of actually calling out what's happened here? Are you about grace? we go off the hook. And if we've been reading John, we know that throughout John we've seen Jesus is about both. He's about grace and truth. So the tension should build in this moment for those there going, how is Jesus going to respond? Is he going to land on Moses or mercy, law or grace, grace or truth? And often I think you and I, we still find ourselves asking this question Today have a number of scenarios in our world where uh, there can be an impression of Jesus in some traditions that is um, very lax, like, oh, Jesus came saying, chillax, not that big of a deal, don't worry, that that was the, old t- the God of the Old Testament, that was a different guy, he was about uh, kind of harshness or stern or the law, uh, but I actually came to just say, just chill out, let's we'll just have fun, how about grace, right? That's one caricature, is that Jesus is kind of all about grace in a way that he actually doesn't care about the law and its demands anymore. Or on the other side, you maybe have some traditions that have a very stern view of Jesus, where it can be kind of a moralistic, legalistic, he's looking at you with that that, that glint in the eye going, you better measure up, you better measure up, or man, I'm going to come down hard on you. I think we still, you and I, we still feel this tension today of going, which one, Jesus, are you going to emphasize? Which one are you going to hold? What we find, though, is that Jesus, we're going to see, holds both. That What he's essentially going to do here is walk through Old Testament adultery law in order to, again, raise the bar uh, on the crowds to bring them under it as well to set this woman free. I have to wonder, though, here, what is this woman feeling? If you're her, What emotions are racing through your heart in this moment? I would assume there's a sense of shame. Like, man, I messed up. And now everybody knows. And now, again, they're in the temple. This is like the national public square, the center. There's crowds. This is all the people are there. And so it's very public. I'm sure there's a sense of humiliation going, man, this is embarrassing. Like, I, I've been caught. If they caught her in the act and dragged her out, there's a good chance that she's half naked. Like, she's wearing uh, not, not fully clothed and all. And, and especially in that day, there's a sense of shame. She's uh, been embarrassed and humiliated and brought out in front of everyone. I'm sure there's fear. She's going, man, I am about to die at the hands of these angry, powerful men surrounding me. And I wonder if there's anger. If she finds herself going, what about him? Like, why only me? I'm sure there's a sense for her. She knows she's being used as bait. She knows they're out to trap Jesus and she's going to get caught in the crossfire. She knows that they are selectively applying the law, and they have way more power than her, and she finds herself on the underside of their, their thumb. Right? If you're this woman, what is going through your heart in this moment? I wonder how many of us can identify with some of those emotions. Have you ever experienced stuff in your life kind of going public, stuff that you didn't want people to know and it kind of comes out and you get doxxed or on social media or that viral video that goes loose of, uh, man, something stupid that you did that just goes viral and now now everyone knows and the people around you know and there can be that sense of shame going, man, I can't believe my junk is out in front of my community. People, I know there can be that sense of uh, embarrassment like, man, how, how, how am I going to walk through this Jesus, with, with my community, with my people, like, we have that sense of fear, like what is the future going to hold? It can feel like a death to the life you've known before. You think of today in our cancel culture, social media world, where many people, man, you say something stupid or you did the wrong thing, and, and every time like, your, your job's done, your business is done, your, your, your life is done, it can feel like shame and this sense of death or dying. Maybe not literal death, but a metaphorical death of the life you once knew. I've had times in my life, and I'm sure you have in yours, where, man, things have, skeletons have come out of the closet. Things have come out into the open, and it can be embarrassing. And you can find yourself before Jesus and find yourself for the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth, and going, I know the crowds have got their stones in hand. I know they want to take me under. But God, how do you see me? Jesus, is there any hope? For my future. She looks up in Jesus' eyes, I wonder what she sees and how much is hanging on. How is the God of the universe who has come in Christ, how is going to respond he respond to her? Will he respond like the crowds? Or does he have a different response? Well, this first section of Old Testament law on adultery was significant. God's goal, his vision, was something good. Again, part of the goal was to raise the bar in the ancient world, to raise the standard so that people couldn't do power plays like this. Right? It's to eviscerate the double standard. If they're caught, you got to be on both, the guy and the gal, right? The dude and the lady. Both need to be brought. And we see that the religious leaders here, they are selectively applying the law that Because they are focused on what's wrong with her, but they're not looking at what's wrong with them. Like The double standard often arises because we want to use uh, whatever moral standard exists, even in our culture or different times, to, to push other people down at times so we can lift and elevate ourselves up and get our way. The problem is not necessarily that they put her under the bar but that they excuse themselves from it. And Jesus says this is a big issue, a big deal. We know this from elsewhere in the gospel. Jesus famously in Matthew 7, he says, you hypocrite, you focus on the speck in your brother's eye, and yet you ignore the plank in your own. You focus on that little bit in that other person, but you ignore the log in your own eye. Jesus says, you, you hypocrite, if you, if you want to actually deal appropriately with the speck in the other person's eye, you've got to first take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to deal with the other person's. The religious leaders here, they are focused on, the, they're focused on maybe it's more of the speck, right? Like she's really, She has done something wrong, but they're focused on that in, in her eye, and they are ignoring the plank in their own. They are using the law selectively and excusing themselves from it. And the reality is this is often true for us as well. It is easier for you to find faults in others than it is to see them in yourself. Uh, Man, I know, we see this all over our culture today. There's the low-hanging fruit of like, politics and online and social media where where each side, man, can easily see and point out uh, blind spots or problems the side of others, but is often so slow to uh, recognize or acknowledge or own uh, things in their own side or their own position or their own camp or their own party. And the sense can be, well, man, if if I own that, it's going to make me vulnerable to saying they're right or something like that, right? And Jesus goes, no, actually owning your own stuff creates the way for actually having healthy, constructive conversation. But I know in my own life I've experienced this, the higher-hanging fruit, the, 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 the place where the rubber has really hit the road for this for me has been in marriage. Marriage has been my mentor in this with my wife and our life together, where I have found the power in close, intimate, personal relationships when you first own your own junk before pointing out the speck in the other person, right? Because in intimate relationships, when things go wrong, it is very easy to highlight and focus, you've did this, you wronged me, I'm mad, I'm not, you know, and to just let them have it. And yet, anybody here know know this dynamic where, what happens when, I'll say time and time again, where I've gone, okay, I'm I'm going into this conversation with my wife, and, and when the first thing I say is, Sweetie, I'm sorry. I did this. Even if I think like she's at 90% fault and I'm only at 10% fault, right? But if I just own that 10%, I don't even have to say anything about the other 90%, the whatever. If I just say, sweetie, I did this, I was wrong. I don't try and justify it. Don't try and excuse it. Don't try whatever. But when you own your stuff, right? Nine times out of 10, I my wife quickly goes, no, it wasn't really you. It was me. I did that. It's just starting even the 90%. And then also see all the other stuff. I didn't even say that. I'm like, well, no, but then I did this. And then you're almost in like this competition for who is more guilty or who did more, right? And there is a disarming, powerful dynamic when we don't use the bar to put someone else under it and knock them down, but we actually raise the bar to put ourselves under it and go, man, I, 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 I didn't meet the bar. I was wrong in this way. I'm going to own what I did. Don't be, don't be Waldo, right? Don't, don't be Waldo kind of hiding out from, I, I'm not going to, I'm not a part of the story. Like, I'm just going to focus on what they did wrong and what my friend did wrong and what my family did wrong and what this person did wrong. I'm just going to focus on them and kind of put the bar over them to knock them down, but I'm going to excuse myself from it. The gospel says there is a power when rather than Lowering the bar low enough so we can think we're over it but kick them under it, When rather when we raise it and we put ourselves under it. Owning your own junk brings the power of reconciliation. There's a vulnerability that paves the way there for reconciliation. All right, well, it is interesting. Jesus, in that Matthew 7 passage, he doesn't say, don't take the speck out of that person's eye. He just says, first take the plank out of yours. Like, own your stuff so that you can create a healthy ground for helping the other person deal with their sin too. This raises the question, how does Jesus respond to their accusation? How does Jesus respond to this charge they bring against her? We read in verse 6b, the second half of verse 6 here, Jesus does something interesting. Jesus bent down, it says, and he wrote with his finger, on the ground. I love how Jesus is just so calm and collected here. It says, And as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. I do love how Jesus is so calm and collected here. It's like, man. The crowds are there, the stone's in hand, the is built, the tension's in the room. They're all ready to, uh, to, to do this. And Jesus' responds. It's like, I'm going to go do a little picture drawing in the sand down here. <laughs> like, like, like what, what's he drawing? And we see this throughout Scripture. We see Jesus, it, they're in the boat in the middle of a storm, and, every, and the disciples are like, we're going to die. And Jesus is taking a nap. <laughs> He's resting. Jesus before Pilate on trial for his life, and the one who has the power to execute him, and Jesus is just silent. Finally, he's like, yeah, you wouldn't have any authority if God hadn't given to you, so I'm just trusting God through this, right? Like, Jesus models a non-anxious presence. He's not caught up or wrapped up in the anxiety of the crowds that surround him. Why is he right on the ground? We're gonna get to that in a moment, but first, I wanna focus on this piece where he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What Jesus is doing here, and he's not lowering the bar so that they can all jump over it, he's raising the bar so high that all of them fall underneath it. Jesus is essentially saying, All right, if you guys want to do this, then everybody must get stone." right? <laughs> not that kind of stone, come on. I know I'm in Flagstaff and I'm from Portland, but hey, not, not, not that kind of stone, right? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> he is raising the bar, saying, Whoever is without sin, let him be the first one to throw the stone. Now, what does Jesus mean by that, him who's without sin? I think there's two things he means here. Uh, first off, it has to do with, again, adultery law. The second movement in adultery law was this. Uh, in order to stone the person, you had to have two eyewitnesses. Two eyewitnesses. This couldn't be the spouse, it can be whatever. Uh, you had to have two people who caught the person uh, or the couple in the act, right? And so these two eyewitnesses, they and they not only had to be the ones to lead the way and bring in the charge, they had to be the first two to throw the stone. This is in Deuteronomy 17 verse seven. And so uh, the the first stone, this is a phrase in the law for the the witnesses who are going to go. I'm going to put my name, my reputation, my everything at stake. Going. I saw this, I got no skin in the game. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, getting a vendetta against them. I'm not doing whatever. Like, I'm just trying to be a valid witness and and I'm going to lead the way in doing this. Now, here's the catch in Deuteronomy 17. If it comes out later that you were lying or if it comes out later that it was entrapment or if it comes out later there was foul play in this that you as the witness were involved in, then you came under the same punishment. So any of the witnesses here who are going to go, I saw it. If it comes out that there was injustice or foul play afoot, they're going to get stoned as well. They're making themselves liable to the same punishment. So when Jesus says, him who is without sin cast the first stone, I think one thing he's saying on the immediate level is going, okay, whoever of you in this game you're playing, trying to trap me, Whichever of you is without sin, you want to do Moses, let's do Moses. You want to do adultery law, let's do adultery law. All right, Whoever, whichever, whatever, whichever witnesses who are going to stake your name, your reputation, and potentially your life on the line, you go get the stones and lead the charge. Right? Jesus is not ignoring the law, he's actually playing the law in his favor. He's actually walking through God's law that was designed to deal in this way with false accusation. It was designed to try and expose or bring out uh, things like this. It was designed to try and deter a mob mentality. Think of how hard it would be to actually be that first one. To have the stone, to hold it, and to go, man, I'm going to lead the charge in doing this. You had, to, you had to really feel the weight of conviction. And I think part of the design of the law was to deter a mob mentality. It was to deter this being used for vendettas or things like that. It was to slow down the process in a way that raised the bar on adultery law in the ancient world. To actually make it more difficult to stone someone for this. So, one level, like Jesus is saying, whichever witnesses don't have any skin in the game, and fair play, all that, you, you lead the charge. But on another level, we know in the Gospel of John, that this phrase, he who is without sin, it echoes out on a reverberates in a way that encompasses all of us. There is a sense in the gospel going, who of you is without sin? Can you or I really say, hey, we can jump the bar of God's law, that we can actually vault that pole, that we can jump that high, that that we can actually succeed in finding ourselves faultless and blameless for the law of perfect loves like righteousness and holiness and Goodness and unity, God. Reality is we all find ourselves under that bar. What I love about this is that Jesus doesn't go around the law. He goes through it. He doesn't lower the bar so we can all jump over it. He raises it so that we all find ourselves under it. Jesus, he, he, he doesn't excuse the woman's sin. He exposes her accuser's sin. He doesn't say to the woman, you don't deserve punishment. He says to everyone there, you all deserve punishment. I love in Romans 11 verse 32, we read this where it says that, For God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. The reason that God raises the bar, so we all find ourselves under it, is so that he can have mercy on us all. That none would be able to boast. You cannot boast, hey, it's because I'm so great, it's because I live this perfect life, it's because I got all my stuff together, it's because I, you can't say, like, that's why I'm in. No, the grounds for being in, in the gospel, in with God, in union with Christ, in life with Jesus, it's not because of how great you are, it's because of how good and generous and merciful he is. That when you find yourself under that bar, but then you look at the Savior who has come, show mercy and grace on all so that none may stand and boast before him that we've done this of our own good, but rather because of his grace. Well, the immediate context here in this passage, I think the reality is you and I, we often lower the bar so that we can hop over it, but Jesus raises it and We do this in all sorts of ways. We want to lower the bar, lower the expectation, lower the standards so that we can all kind of hop over it in all sorts of ways. Uh, But one of the ways I think we feel a lot of pressure to do that today is with sexual ethics, which is an area that's at play right here in this passage, right? So let's talk about that for a moment with sexual ethics. I think in our moment today, in our culture today, there's a lot of pressure we can feel of going, man, I don't want to hold a high view or a high bar for sex because that can sound judgmental right? And so, if I say, like, dude, um, man, if I say that you should save sex for marriage, that we we shouldn't be sleeping together until we get married, that's going to make me sound like a prude and looked down upon by my peers and my social circle. Uh, If I say that divorce actually cracks the icon of this union that's supposed to display Christ and the church and their their holy union together forever, it's going, man, you're, you're just... Taking things too seriously and, and and holding too high of a view. If I if you say, like, man, adultery, it's actually a, a horror God hates, and it's not actually something that's good, then you could be looked to as, man, what a what a stick in the mud. Yeah. If, man, if you say that marriage, if you go, hey, marriage is the one flesh union of one man and one woman, you go, man, that uh, you can be called a bigot, just saying you're bigoted. If you say uh, pornography or porn, it's destructive that it's dehumanizing to women or to men, and it turns people into sexual objects and plasticity of the brain. It can actually shape and form you in unhealthy ways. Okay, you just got, people can go, man, you're just a stick in the mud, right? And so we can feel this pressure of going, if I hold a high bar, I'm going to sound judgmental, and I don't want to sound judgmental because I don't want to be a religious leader or a Pharisee. And so I, I, I feel like I need to lower it in order to be a person of grace, but the problem is, when we lower the bar, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It creates more new problems. We can have a false view of Jesus again. That It's as if Jesus came just saying, hey, chillax. Old Testament was about the law. I'm just all about grace. So just lighten up and do what you want. That's not true to who Jesus was. He was a prophet who came... With fiery words confronting the people of God with their wickedness and unrighteousness and sexual immorality is one big theme that he confronts his people among, among others like greed and idolatry and other things, right? And there's a danger when we lower the bar that we can find ourselves gradually drifting from God becoming, feeling more distant from him. And it can be a very awkward spot to find yourself in when you're saying, Yes to things that God says no to. So how do we deal with this tension where, man, if I, if I kind of hold a higher view, I'm going to sound judgmental, but if I lower it, I feel like I'm, I'm not really meeting, like, doing justice to God's heart and his words and what he stands for for us as his people. I believe Jesus models here how we can respond to that. That can feel like a trap for us in our culture. Like, oh man, either way I go, I'm, I'm going get, uh, get, to get hosed one way or the other how do we respond? I believe Jesus models the way we can go here which is raise the bar high enough until you find yourself underneath it. Right? The solution is you and I we can raise the bar high enough till we find ourselves underneath it. Let me explain what I mean when someone asks me like do you think pornography is wrong? What I want to say is yeah, and actually in Matthew 5, Jesus says that if you've even lusted after someone in your heart, that that's actually where the problem is. And, man, you've got the, the roots of hell inside of you on my heart. And I know I've, I've done that, and so I find myself in need of mercy on that front. When someone asks me, like, do you think homosexuality is wrong? my first response is usually, well, I think American sexuality is wrong, <laughs> right? Like the way that we look to it, what we look to it for, the value we place in it, the things that we try and find our meaning and our fulfillment and romance and all that. Man, I think focusing only on same-sex sexual activity or whatever, it can be like focusing on a leaky faucet on the Titanic, right? Like, yeah, there's water getting into the ship there, but Dude, We're on the Titanic, like American sexuality is the Titanic and there's breaks in the hole and there's water flooding in all over the place like adultery, divorce, premarital sex, pornography, sex with robots, like also, I don't know, you just keep naming all the stuff that's going on and and Jesus is in the lifeboat going, hey, that ship's sinking, come over here with me. I think even in our culture that going, there is a devaluing of singleness, right? And Jesus has an exalted higher view of singleness. Jesus himself was single. So, no one needs to be told the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy, right? Because in our culture, the sense is if you're 40 and you haven't had sex and you're missing out, your life is kind of funny or humorous, like it's a joke, and Jesus goes, no. The reality is Jesus was a 40-year-old virgin, right? Or at least a 33-year-old one, right? Jesus was single, and he lived the most meaningful, fulfilling human life in all of history, And that means that you don't need romance or marriage ultimately to have a meaningful, fulfilling life in the kingdom of God. Jesus Jesus raises the bar and gives us a fuller, bigger, robust vision by actually giving us the very thing that sex and marriage and family, all that was designed to point to in the first place, which is the union with God that we were made for, that we all have access to in Christ. When people ask me, do you think adultery is wrong? I go, yeah. But also, adultery is a major image throughout the biblical story of when his people cheat on him with other lovers, other gods, other things. And I know we've all found ourselves guilty of that. I think there is a solution for you and I in the cultural tension we feel today of, man, high view makes you fancy a rental, low view, uh, sounds like cheap grace, whatever. But I believe the gospel, Jesus shows us, actually just raise the bar high enough that you find yourself underneath it and invite people into the grace that we found in Christ. Amen? The solution is not in minimizing other things as sin, but in maximizing that you and I sin too. The goal is not to excuse sin, but the best way to avoid being judgmental is to expose your own sin. Jesus-centered compassion involves raising the bar high enough till you find yourself under it. Uh, this can raise a question, though, about the law. Jesus is upholding Old Testament adultery law here as he's walking through it, and this can raise a question for us today. Well, man, that, that sounds like Jesus has a high view of the Old Testament law, and I thought, man, some of us might think, man, that's that's outdated. It's, it's bad. Like, what what does that do? Does that mean like, what about the laws on shellfish and? man, if you don't observe the Sabbath, you can get punished, and, you know, what's going on with that? Well, I think it'd be helpful, I want to just teach here from a moment on, uh, what have often been called three different uses of the law. These categories aren't perfect, but they help give us a bit of a grid that I think can help us grapple on, uh, in what way is the law helpful or instructive for us today? And these three uses were the uh, civil, the ceremonial, and the moral, they're often called, right? And so uh, the civil law goes, uh, many of these laws, the the purpose and design is that Israel in the Old Testament was a nation state with a government, a political structure and all that. And uh, so some of the laws are designed for that. But those don't necessarily apply to us today as the church because we're not a political nation state in that sense, right? Like now we are, the Gentiles have been brought in, we are many nations, we live in the United States, and in Brazil, and Kenya, and China, and in all these other places, and uh, we we abide by the laws of the land generally, you know, and 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 there's 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 a there's a sense in which those laws had a specific purpose for Israel in the Old Testament that our context today, as Gentiles, the nations in the New Covenant, has changed. The second use of the law that's Often historically been a category has been the ceremonial, and this would be things like the sacrificial system. Right, they were unique to Israel for dealing with sin, with the sacrificial system and the priests and the animals and all that. Um, Now the problem is not that that was bad, but actually that now that has been fulfilled. Like Christ has fulfilled those laws; he is the once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. We don't need to go to the temple. We are the temple and dwelt by God's spirit, and. Some of these laws were to distinguish Israel as a people from the surrounding nations, but now that's changed because we are the surrounding nations. So the ceremonial purposes behind the law often don't necessarily apply to us today, because they've even been fulfilled or the situation has changed where we're at in the story of God today. But the third category would be the moral. And these dealt with the ethical vision, God's heart for his people, and how they would live together with one another. And the motive for all the law, Jesus says, was loving God and loving others and this loving union for this community that bears witness to God's love for the world. And uh, this would deal with things like no idolatry and sexual ethics. We want, And it's interesting, these are reaffirmed and even intensified in the New Testament by Jesus. Jesus doesn't lighten up on these. He actually calls his followers in the Beatitudes. He raises the bar and goes, "Not only don't commit adultery, don't lust in your heart. Not only don't murder, don't hate your brother in your heart." Right? Like Jesus is raising the bar and intensifying calling us as his people to a purity of heart and motive as his people. In Acts 15 there's an interesting scene where the Jerusalem council they're trying to decide, "Okay, now we all these Gentiles have come into the faith people who are not Israelites." which parts of the law are we going to hold them to expectation? And they go, well, not circumcision, not all these other things, not the ceremonial, not the civil. But they said, uh, no idolatry, basically, and still upholding sexual, no, no sexual immorality. Like, they upheld, like, these parts of the law are still instructive for us as God's people today. Going God's heart for his people to embody his love as a communion together before the world. Holds um, these. So... This is an area where Jesus raises the bar and calls us as his people to pursue him through purity in areas of how we live in things like this. Uh, Things like pride and lust and rage and greed. The Holy Spirit wants to, over time, but sanctify and transform us as his people through the love of God. All right, well, let's... See how this passage ends in verse nine. Verse nine. We read, but when they heard it, when they heard him say, "Whoever was without sin, throw the first stone," when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I love how the older ones go away first. There's a sense that when you're young, when you're in college, like remember me, man, you think you got it all figured out. Like ah, another one. Then you get older, and life hits you. Go, Man, I made so many mistakes. I, I ain't without sin. I'm, I'm, I'm going home, right? <laughs> life experience will do that to you. So, so uh, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus, the only one without sin, was left alone, the one who could jump the bar. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. we find here is that Jesus brings conviction without condemnation. Jesus convicts us of our sin, but not to condemn us, but in order to set us free. Jesus brings conviction for her. We see he says, sin no more. He acknowledges that there is sin that has taken place, and he calls her to repent and turn away from it. So he convicts her of her sin. But he doesn't condemn her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a classic question going on here. Why does Jesus write in the sand? Why does he bend down and write in the sand? Well, I suggest to you that here, Jesus is walking through the third and final movement of Old Testament adultery law. Right? Old Testament adultery law. Here's the way it goes. We find that in uh, Numbers chapter 5, what was called the trial of jealousy. And the way this thing worked was, if someone was suspected of committing adultery, so husbands go, man, I I think my wife's cheating on me, or the wife's, I think, I I think, I think I've been cheating on. Then they would uh, bring the person to the high priest in the temple courts. They bring that person to the high priest in the temple. Notice where the scene is taking place, right? Like in the temple courts. I think the picture John wants us to have, big picture here, is like Jesus is like the high priest that she is being brought to him in the temple courts with this accusation. But if there was suspicion, but they didn't have the witnesses and they couldn't prove it, then they would go through what was called this trial of jealousy. And what would happen in this trial of jealousy is the high priest would bend down, probably in the ground, but would go down and would write the accusation in the ground. He would write the accusation that was being brought against the person. And he would take the sand or the dirt or whatever, and he would put it into a cup. And then he would mix the cup with water from the temple. This living water, this sign of water from the temple. And he would stir it, and the person would drink it. And this, uh, this process, it was supposed to expose whether the person was guilty or innocent. Now, I believe the picture that we should see here is that Jesus is like the high priest that this woman is being brought to in the temple courts with this accusation, the suspicion of adultery. And he is writing the accusation in the ground as kind of the picture that we should have against this backdrop. And then, you know, they would mix it with water. And what we've just seen, if you are just tracking what just happened here in John chapter seven, is Jesus saying, I am the living water. I am the water, the promised water that's gonna come flowing forth from the temple again to bring life to the world. And so Jesus and it says, I believe, is mixing the accusation, we should see, with his own presence. So he is the whole high priest, he is the living water, and he is also Yahweh in the flesh here before her that can expose her guilt or her innocence. And the reality is, that we should have this picture, that Jesus exposes her guilt. He convicts her. He says, sin no more. He brings forth the reality that she is guilty in this. And he exposes her. He doesn't excuse her sin, he surfaces her guilt, but he doesn't condemn her. He calls it a repentance, saying, "Go and sin no more." And we should get from this that, like, man, Jesus takes your sin seriously. Right? Like, he's not lax, going, "Ah, it's just not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm laid back." You know, like, no, Jesus takes your sin seriously because he loves you. It is because Jesus loves you, that He takes your sin seriously, because He knows that your sin, it alienates you, uh, it, it alienates us from God, it wreaks havoc and destruction in our community. And so because Jesus loves us, He is unwilling to just sit back and let the destruction wreak havoc. Jesus has come as the high priest to actually expose our sins so that it can be dealt with because He loves us, and he wants to heal and restore us and make us whole again. Jesus's love. Motivates his conviction of our sin. But we also find here that Jesus, while he convicts you, he doesn't condemn you. He says, neither do I condemn you. His goal is to heal and restore you. Jesus' goal when he brings your sin out of the woodwork, it's not to tear you down, it's to build you back up. uh, It may take time, uh, it may take sanctification, it may be to be a process, but Jesus' goal is not to condemn you. We're in John, he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God so loved the world that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He is the light who has come to expose our darkness, but to set us free from our darkness and so that we can live in the glorious light of life Together with him, Jesus has come not to condemn you, but to set you free. And I wonder what this woman saw as she looked up with all the fear, the humiliation, the shame, the uh, all that's going on in this scene. As she looked up, I wonder, what did she see in Jesus' eyes? What did she see? Imagine that for a moment. Just think, what did she see in Jesus' eyes? On the one hand, when it came to Sin and the plank in the eye, she saw nothing right Jesus is the only one there with no plank in his own eye, not even a speck in his own eye. Jesus is the only one in the temple on that scene who has no sin in him, which makes him able to see clearly enough to help her remove the thing in hers right so on one hand, she looks in his eyes and she sees nothing. there is no sin, there is no plank, there is nothing that that Man, that there, there's nothing like the hatred and the anger and the vindictiveness and the double standard that she sees in the other leaders around her. And yet, I believe when she looks in his eyes, she sees love, presence of love. Like the love of God has come in Christ to heal and set her free. And the love of God has come in Christ to heal and set you free. And when you see that, when you can see the love in Jesus' eyes, why he's come, you can trust him to lay the things before him that might bring you conviction. Because, yes, your sin may be serious, but the seriousness of your sin points to the splendor of your Savior. The seriousness of our sin points to the splendor of our Savior, that when you see why he has come and that his goal is to set you free, it can generate the trust to go, I don't need to hide anymore. I don't need to hide in the darkness or pretend like this thing isn't there anymore. I don't need to keep this stuff in the shadows. Jesus, I can actually come before you. I can come before a close community of others in the church. I can bring this stuff out in the open, out of the darkness and into your light, because I don't want it to hold that power over me anymore. You can say, I don't want that sin to hold the, the, the cl- its clutches on me, that mold, the things to grow that grow in the darkness. I want to bring them out into the light so that the light of Jesus' presence can break their power. Because Jesus has not come to condemn you, He has come to set you free. I want to land with this. That the reason that Jesus can set you free. It's because he took your place. The reason that Jesus can convict you of your sin but not condemn you of your sin is because he took your place on the cross. Right? See an allusion to this here in John, I believe, where the phrase in the midst, the way this shows up, it's kind of an echo in this passage of John where in verse 3 we see they set her in the midst to kill her, to stone her, Right? But then, after this encounter with Jesus, in verse 9, it says the woman left in the midst. But we follow down to the end of the passage in verse 59. What we find is that now Jesus takes her place. He is in the midst, we're told, where they are ready to stone him. The passage opens where they put her in the midst, ready to stone her. And the passage ends where she has been acquitted and walked away free. And Jesus stands in the midst. They're going to stone her. Jesus takes her place. She won't be killed by them, but he will. She won't be killed by them and he will. And check this when it comes to the crucifixion, later in John chapter 19, verse 18, guess where they crucified Jesus? In the midst of the two criminals. Jesus is able to convict us of our sin without condemning us of our sin because he took our place. You and I are like that that, that, that woman. Right? We are the ones caught in adultery. We are the ones who have cheated on God, who have broken his law, who have broken God's desires, his heart for the world, expressed in his law for, for love of God, love of others in this flourishing, the shalom, this union. We have violated God's shalom. We have broken his law. We have violated his standards. We have wreaked havoc and disruption in our families, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our world, and ultimately in our relationship with our maker, with our creator. And there is an accuser who condemns. That, Like these leaders in this passage, Satan has come saying, you broke the law, stone him, God. The enemy comes, and he, you may hear his voice this morning that's bringing up those things that you've done, those things that have happened, and they, the accuser is the one who is, man, the lies in your ears, so God could never forgive you of this. God could never, you are, man, you're, you're worthless. All, 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 your only hope, your only future, there is no hope. Your future is judgment, death, and the grave. But that, my friends, is the voice of the enemy, of Satan, of the accuser. We find in the eyes of Jesus and the voice of Jesus is that Jesus has come to break the power of the law by bearing its punishment in our place. Jesus has convicted us of our sin. And yet he stands in our place to bear the condemnation for our sin. And Romans 8 verse 1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that if you are in Christ Jesus, then like this woman, you can walk away in the midst. From the midst of those who want to destroy you because Jesus has entered in the midst to bear your punishment in your place. You can be set free because Jesus took the consequences of your sin. That my friends, is good news. That's good news. We no longer have to live under the fear or power of the law. There is freedom as we look into the eyes of Christ. He, as we come this morning, we're going to come to communion in a little bit. But as we come to prayer and reflection, even we come to Jesus, the one who raised the bar. He didn't. He didn't lower it so you could kind of jump over it and hop it. Or man, he raised it so high that we all find ourselves underneath it. But he is done this. He has consigned us all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. And when you look in the eyes of the Savior, when you look in the eyes of Jesus and see his heart for you and his desire towards you, it gives the freedom to say, Jesus, you can have it all. I'm going to bring my stuff out of the closet. I'm going to bring my junk out of the darkness into the light. I want to invite you as we enter into a time of confession, or not a time of confession, a time of reflection, a reflection here in a moment to reflect on, man, is there anything that that I've been kind of hiding, that I've been kind of keeping in the shadows, not not acknowledging before you, maybe not bringing before others, someone I've wounded, someone I've hurt. I want to invite you in prayer during this time to, to bring that before Christ. I want to encourage you to look, if you will, in the eyes of your imagination, look into the eyes of Jesus. See his heart towards you. See his desire for you and find there the freedom to go, I can bring this stuff before him because I know he ain't out to condemn me. He may have come to convict me of it, but it's so that he can set me free. Right. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you that you love us too much to ignore our, our sin, to pretend it's not there, that you see the way our rebellion, the darkness in all of us, God, and our hearts, the way it alienates us from you, the way it wreaks havoc in our family, our friends, our community, our neighborhood, your world. Just thank you that you love us too much. Just pretend it ain't there, God. So God, I thank you that you have not lowered the bar, but you have raised it, and not just for that, God, because if it were that, man, we would all stand condemned, but I thank you that you have raised it in order that you may have mercy on all, that the means of our acceptance or entrance is not how good we are, but how good you are, Jesus. God, thank you for your mercy. Lord, we want to take this time of reflection now, and, and God, just pray, Holy Spirit, if there are things that have been hiding in the shadows, um, would you bring conviction this morning? Lord? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would search our hearts and that you would highlight and draw and convict uh, of anything that we need to bring out into the open before you, Lord. And yet, Holy Spirit, I thank you that the, the reason that you convict is not to condemn, is to set us free. So Lord, I pray this morning that we would be set free from any sin that entangles anything that's been hiding in the shadows. Jesus, we bring it before you. God, trusting you and your love for us, that you have come to set us free. Jesus, in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.